Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Tonight, I'm going to be doing our last um, reading of the passage in Mark's Gospel where Jesus calms the storm. So if you've missed the last couple of weeks, you might be slightly unfamiliar with what we're doing. But what we're doing this year is each month we're taking... Um, one passage of scripture and starting in the fourth Sunday of the month in house churches, we're just going to be looking at that passage of scripture in a contemplative, more personal way. What is the scripture saying to us? What is God speaking to us through his, through his word? And then the following three, three Sundays of the month, we're going to preach on that one passage of scripture, but each week through a different lens. So in a way, just being able to look at Scripture through different perspectives um, in order that we might see things that we um, that, are un, that are new to us, in, in order that we might grasp Scripture in new ways, that I think there's a lot to be gained from reading beyond our own perspective. So seeing things that, are, that might feel foreign to us but quite natural to another person and then allowing the richness of those perspectives to help inform and encourage and comfort us. And so we've been um, looking at Jesus calms the storm, primarily from the Gospel of Mark, although it is present in Matthew and Luke as well. And Oren, in the first week, did a political reading of that passage where it looks at the invitation um, or, or the command even from Jesus to cross over to the other side, a side that's foreign and very other, and all the ways in which in community and relationships with one another, Jesus is always calling us to cross over from what's familiar into what's unfamiliar, trusting that even if we encounter a storm on the way, that the passage through to unity and togetherness is one that Jesus calls us to. Then last week, um, Becca did a, a reading of this scripture through the lens of mental health, looking at the ways in which, you know, mental health for us in different times can feel like a storm. And what does it mean that Jesus might calm that storm? Um, what does it mean that Jesus might not come that storm? <laughs> what does it mean that one day the sea would be no more and that the chaos and the, um, the, the raging of the storms that we're looking to an end where God is going to um, once and for all end the chaos? And so that was a really beautiful, um, beautiful reading of that scripture. And tonight I'm going to be looking at the same passage of scripture but through an apophatic Lens. So I did put that in an email and I have heard a lot of people say they went and Googled what apophatic meant. And so I felt like I really don't want to, yeah, there is no better word for it, you know, but you know, I didn't want to sound pretentious. Like, oh, pretentious is using this funny Greek word. But um, I really felt actually when we were planning this that, um, that this passage in particular lets us have a look at some things that um, we don't normally get to see in Scripture. And so I want to just have a look at um, the apophatic and explain that and then have a look at how Mark might be um, and this story of Jesus might actually be a real comfort for us in terms of our spiritual lives. So in a way you could also say that the reading I'm going to do tonight is a spiritual reading, looking at this, this passage of Scripture as a metaphor for the spiritual life. Um, and the experiences we have in the spiritual life between us 
and Jesus or us and God. So looking at Mark chapter 4 and verse 35 to 41, I'm going to read it for us to start and then we'll go from there. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Great passage, right? Like very familiar. Um, Certainly if you've been raised in the church and been to kids' church, this is classic, classic kids' church material. Um, So reading this through an apophatic lens, basically what I want to do is explain a bit of the apophatic tradition and then make our way to look, coming back and looking at the passage of, again with, with fresh eyes and seeing what we can see. So um, there are, this, this is going to sound like maybe pretentious. I don't mean it to. Intellectual. Within our Christian tradition, largely when it comes to both theology and spirituality, there are two streams There are many streams, but two in this sense. The apophatic stream and the cataphatic stream. So they go together like two sides of the one coin, you could say. So those two words, apophatic and cataphatic, describe these two streams or these two postures or these two approaches to both spirituality and theology. And they come from Greek words and the word at the heart of Um, Fatic is the word phane, which means to speak, or sometimes also translated as to image, so to speak to image. And the word kata is an intensifier, like in Greek, it's an intensifier, so it makes it strong what the next bit is. And the word apo means away from. And so essentially these two streams represent Um, cataphatic means to speak about God, to be able to image God, to um, communicate what God is. And the apophatic stream means to move away from speaking about or imaging God. So one is to speak of God and one is to move away from speaking of God. Not necessarily not speak of God, but move away from um, speaking about God. And so these two streams and approaches, they're not in competition with one another, but they actually sit alongside one another and are complementary. And they have like a long history and a long tradition that probably when you think about it and if you studied it would go well 
before the start of the church, but I'm just going to look at it from the perspective of the beginnings of the early church. So in the beginnings of the early church, as people are starting to do really robust theology, the early church fathers and mothers, and they're writing creeds and they're dealing with heresies and they're trying to figure out what is this good news of Jesus Christ? How do we explain this? How do we understand who he is? Who is God? What is he doing? How does this work? All of that kind of stuff where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from and the doctrine of God, um, the Father and the Son, and is Jesus the Son? You know, you go on, if you do your church history, you'll figure it out. So there was lots of speaking about God. And as that speaking about God and trying to put into language this understanding of God and Jesus and God's work in the world and the Spirit, there was also alongside that a movement where people were starting to feel that there is so much that is unspeakable about God. Like we're putting all of this energy into speaking about God, trying to make sense of God, trying to, um, you know, in our human terms, comprehend who God is and what he was doing. But we are speaking of something that is incomprehensible and is so far beyond us that mere words and images utterly fail in their attempt to make sense of. So the apophatic rose up as an alternative to all the speaking about God and it became a way for us to hold the mystery and the incomprehensible of God in, in our hands alongside everything that we can say about God. And so that's kind of like how it happened. And we sort of have this sense and that when we talk about God, and even when we talk about God, we tend to talk about God as if he is a being among other beings. Because that is the only way that we can make sense of him, to speak of him as if he exists and he's a being and, you know, God's hands, God's feet, God's mind, God's heart, you know. And yet God is beyond being. He's not a being among other beings. He is utterly beyond being. He's the ground of being is what some people... So it's like... We talk about God as a being, but he's not a being. So to be able to talk about God as tangible is to be in the cataphatic stream. To acknowledge that God is utterly beyond anything that we can explain is to lean into the apophatic stream. And they both kind of like sat alongside each other in a, count, like in a kind of counterbalancing way for us to know that we can know God and God is unknowable, that we can relate to God but he's so other than us. So it's like those that, that kind of like balancing that came out. Um, Tertullian, in, um, he, he was roughly around 155 to 240. He says this, God is beyond all our conceptions. Our very incapacity of fully grasping him 
affords us the idea of what he really is. He is presented to our minds in his transcendent greatness as at once known and unknown. In other words, paraphrased, for those of us who find statements like that hard to access, the moment we realise we do not understand God, we are far closer to grasping him than in any moment we think we can, like, grasp him. Does that make sense? So, like, the unknowing, the unknowableness of God actually comes closer to his essence than anything that we can say. Um, Augustine of Hippo defined God with that lovely phrase in Latin, which means other, completely other. And he went on to write, if you understand something, it is not God. (laughs) Which is like, this is the apophatic. The moment you think you've understood something, it's eluded your, your, your grasp. That's, that's the apophatic tradition, which is not to say that we can never speak of God. It's just to lead us into uh, much more wonder and mystery about who God actually is. So it's not meant to cripple us. It's actually meant to cause us to, you know, crack open in wonder. Um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem says this, For we explain not what God is, but candidly confess that we have not exact knowledge concerning him. For in what concerns God, to confess our ignorance is the best knowledge. And this is, these statements from those guys that I've, I've read out so far, these are coming out alongside the same time as all of the creeds of the church, when they are actually fighting and writing what we believe as foundation to our faith. So alongside this very concrete, tangible creeds that, you know, if you've grown up in um, liturgical churches, you may have grown up reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Maybe you still remember it. Maybe it's hidden back in the recesses of your mind that you can state those, you know, very God from very God, true light, you know, you know, I don't know. I don't know it that well. I should know it that well. Jessamy, you would know it, wouldn't you? You'd be able to like boom, 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 boom. A lot, the same time that they are putting down with words all of this magnificent stuff, they are also saying with their words, like the, actually the moment we've written this down, we've almost missed the point. To unknow is to know. To, to know that God is beyond knowledge is to come into wisdom. The moment you think you know, you're actually ignorant. So they had a very balanced kind of like, you know, nature to all of this. Um, a few more recent things. Nicholas of Cusa was a bit of an apophatic saint and he um, says that apophatic spirituality is a learned ignorance. In other words, it's not plain ignorance, like I know nothing, but it's like I know things and I choose to surrender them into ignorance because the more I know, the more I don't know. And if I'm grasping on to what I know, then maybe that is I'm heading towards the end of my knowing. And so it's a learned ignorance that I choose to lean into not knowing. And Rowan Williams, who is the who was the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury. Lovely, wonderful man. I love the stuff that Rowan Williams talks about. 
And he talks about apophatic theology as repentance of the intellect. And I love that because there is a lot of ego involved in anything that ends in ology. Um, and, and theology, to think that we can speak about God um, <laughs> and that we know what we believe and we can tell people what we think is, you know, important on some senses. But to lean in into the apophatic is to have a sense of repentance around the intellect. Um, and so this is sort of like the two, you know, this is, that's the, some of the, stu- the, the, the writings about the apophatic stream. And so we have the apophatic tradition, we have the cataphatic tradition. And if I was to like put them next to each other, this is a little bit of what we'd come up with. The apophatic tradition, either in theology or spirituality, declares that God is beyond knowing, that God is beyond understanding, he's beyond comprehension, he's beyond names, he's beyond sensing, he's beyond speaking. The apophatic tradition is the the seed of the contemplative life. So contemplation and the contemplative tradition came out of the apophatic nature of things. To, to, to be silent, to sit still, to have wordless prayer all springs up out of the apophatic sense of we words are, there are not enough words to even speak about God. Therefore, in wordless silence, I, I encounter him. That's So the contemplative, a lot of the contemplative tradition comes out of um, the apophatic and, yeah. And then there's lots of, lots of writers throughout history, the Cappadocian father, Pseudo-Dionysus, the Areopagite, everyone's best friend. He wrote a lot about the apophatic tradition. Maximus, the confessor. Has anyone read The Cloud of Unknowing? <laughs> Cloud of Unknowing, classic apophatic um, book. (laughs) Um, Very hard to understand. Uh, Part of the point, I think. Um, No one knows who wrote it, but it it is a classic apophatic text. The writings of St John of the Cross and even Teresa of Avila, who both said in one of their high statements about God, God is no thing or nothing, no thing. And they weren't trying to disparage God, what they're getting at is the apophatic tradition of God is not a thing among things. He is no thing. Anyway, they're into that. Um, Meister Eckhart was another writer, um, you know, in this tradition. You'll see it, you know, bumping up. You might, again, you don't know the the wanky word, apophatic, but you know the sense of it, right? So, and then there's the cataphatic tradition, which is, you know, God is knowable, God is understandable, God is comprehensible, God is nameable, God is feelable, God is speakable. And what comes up out of that tradition is, is everything else. Basically, anything you do in church is cataphatic. When we sing and we declare goodness about God, when we read our Bibles, when we pray with words, it's all cataphatic. It's all using words and images and sensing to speak of God. And it's all good. And I'm not here tonight to say that that's not good. I'm I'm here to say that that's good. And I'm really, really grateful for both the apophatic and the cataphatic traditions. And they, they balance each other out. If we did not have the apophatic tradition, we would have no place for what we don't understand. 
when it comes to God. We would have no context for when we cannot feel or hear God. We would have no way of having space for that which is just beyond us. So the apophatic tradition gives, gives us so much richness and without it we would have such a shallow faith. But without the cataphatic tradition we'd be all like, we would be all like astronauts detached from our spaceship floating in space. Like, I don't know, it might feel good for 30 seconds, but I just want to come home. We need, like, so the cataphatic tradition gives us anchors, gives us context, helps us feel our feet on the ground, helps us, like, even, like, know, like, to, to know God, to relate to God. Otherwise, we're all, like, we can't live apophatic because it would be useless to everyone. But they, so they balance each other out. And at their heart, they're reaching toward the same thing, which is to be able to encounter our God who is both transcendent and utterly beyond us and our God who is imminent and utterly close to us. So they're both reaching for this God that is, yes, yeah, so other and beyond us and the God that is closer to us than we are to ourselves. They're both reaching for those things. They're just using different ways of getting there. It's about presence and absence. The cataphatic tradition is about the presence of God in its speakable, nameable, feelable sense. The apophatic is about the, the absence of God, which actually doesn't exist because God is always present, but it's not always felt, tangible, nameable. And we need space for both of those things in our spiritual lives. In more basic terms, some people talk about the apophatic way as the way of darkness and the cataphatic way as the way of light. But at the end of the day, both of those ways end in our own blindness because as we draw near to unapproachable light, we cannot see a thing because it's so bright. And the apophatic tradition talks about luminous darkness in which we also cannot see a thing. And so they're, they're reaching towards the same things, this sense of the, the transcendence of God who is both inapproachable light and luminous darkness. And in him... We live and move and have our being, but we can't always sense it or know it or name it because it's beyond us. Um, in scripture, we, you know, there's lots of scriptures that the, the apophatic tradition uses to help ground how we see this in scripture. One of the big passages they, they um, look at is the Moses and the burning bush. So in the story of Moses and the burning bush, we have a very tangible burning bush. <laughs> we have a very tangible interruption of the presence of God into Moses' life that he can see, sense and name. And yet when he talks to this burning bush, what does this burning bush say he is? I am. Thanks, Bush. <laughs> Not very helpful. I am, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. 
thank you. Like that's the apophatic. Like what is that? That's unnameable. Another translation of that is I will be what I will be. Great, but what are you? I will be what I will be. Like be, I am beyond being. I can't even like I like that's what it's getting at in this. Like, so there's a burning bush. Great, cataphatic. Yay, we like this one. I can see it. I can feel it. And then it says, I will be what I will be. And I'm thrown back into like blindness. This is our, this is God and often our experiences of him. We have Elijah up on Mount Horeb waiting for God. And we have all the cataphatic experiences of the earthquake and the fire and the rushing wind. And then what do we get in the apophatic? The still silence of God. That's the cataphatic and the apophatic interacting in the life of Elijah. In the book of Song of Songs, we have a, you know, a beautiful picture of both of these streams where we have the cataphatic stream of, I'm in love and let's frolic together on the mountaintops and look at you with your hair and your everything. And then you have other passages where it's like, where are you? Where are you? I am longing for you. I cannot see you. You have gone and I cannot find you. And that's the apophatic. We have the cataphatic longing and relationship and intimacy. And we have the apophatic, what? Where have you gone? And they're interwoven in this book of Song of Songs. And it's quite wonderful. And even in the book of Revelation, we're very image-rich image book, um, there, is, there is a sense that has wondered people in the apophatic tradition about the choir of heaven that sings silence. That's the apophatic, the choir of silence in heaven. Like this is the juxtaposition of this God that we, what we speak of and yet cannot speak of. And so those, certainly those in the apophatic tradition will definitely say that Jesus is what makes this unknowable God knowable. So there is a very strong, it's not just all like unknown in the apophatic. There is a sense that, you know, we do say Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, we see the face of the Father. If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. And he gives us very tangible, very accessible, very relational ways that we can connect with God. So I want to anchor us back down in that. But also then to bring us back to our passage in Mark, I feel like in our story of Jesus calming the storm, we have sitting alongside each other these same experiences of the cataphatic and the apophatic. And it gives me a great hope and grounding for the spiritual life that both of these experiences are good and real and have their purpose. And so if we look at the, this passage again, we have, you know, Jesus in the flesh. So if, if that is not God being present, I'm not really quite sure what is. So in this passage, we have the very presence of God in the bodily form of Jesus. And yet we also have a very distinct sense of the absence of God. Because while Jesus is there, 
He's asleep and seems largely unconcerned, unaware or unbothered by the storm that's raging around him and that is actually bothering everybody else. And so we have both the presence and yet the absence of God in this story. Um, in, In this story, we have both the silence and the spoken word of God. So while Jesus is asleep, he's there's a sense of the silence of God. You can, the storm is raging, the disciples are freaking out, probably yelling, bailing water out of their boat, and there is no word at all from God. I mean, admittedly, he's asleep. But, you know, he's not speaking. And then we get this moment where Jesus stands up and speaks and calms the storm. And those two things are sitting alongside each other, the silence of God and the speaking of God in the same passage. In this passage, we have God as knowable because Jesus is standing in front of them knowable, relatable, touchable, seeable, hearable. And we we get that from the New Testament where, you know, they say this is the testimony concerning Jesus who we saw and touched and heard with our own. So there's this very sense, very tangible sense of God in this passage. And there's also this utter sense of God as mystery because towards the end of the passage they're saying, who is this? Who is this? This is God in front of me and yet I don't even know who he is. And that again is like the the cataphatic and the apophatic sandwiched together, that which we know and that which we do not have a clue about. The words of God that we hear and are like life to us and the silence of God which nearly all of us will probably be well familiar with. The sense of the presence of God, which is warm and comforting at all times, whether we're in a storm or we're just fishing at midday, and the felt absence of God, the felt absence of God. I don't want to say he was absent. He's never absent. There's nowhere we can go from his presence. If he is the ground of being, if he's existence himself, we cannot exist in any form outside of his this, I don't even know how to speak of it. So, so, so I, I, I don't believe God is in any way absent. Yet, but I know the felt absence of God. I know what it feels like to feel like Jesus is asleep in my boat. Thanks for being in the boat, Jesus. But could you wake up? So, I feel like in this passage we have both of these in evidence, and I feel like. It really gives us permission, reading this passage through the lens of the apophatic, to just actually talk about that which is unnameable, unspeakable, unfeelable, unknowable. It gives us space to acknowledge that along with all of our wonderful experiences of God and all the things we can sing about and all the things we can read about and all the stories we can tell, there is also a sense that we cannot sometimes grasp God. We do not know him. And maybe as soon as we get close to knowing him, we're going to find our ignorance. And that all of this is simply part of being in the boat with Jesus. 
that it's actually not a bad thing or a negative thing or a problem if we're experiencing mystery, absence, silence, but actually this is just a part of being in existence with a God so other than us, that all our attempts to name, feel, know are simply that, attempts to name, feel and know, good, healthy, helpful. But there will also be times in our lives when we feel like God is asleep, that it is dark and we don't know, that God is mystery and he's beyond us, that we can't sort of grasp at him. We don't know where his power is and we can only wonder if he's there. This is the gift, I think, of the apophatic tradition because it lands all of that within the luminous darkness of inapproachable light and God. So it places all of our experience within the realm of God and doesn't mean that any of that unknowing, unfeeling, unspeaking is wrong or a problem that can actually be a gift. And in every experience we have in our spiritual lives, whether we have an overwhelming experience of God's presence, that's comfort and strength to us, or whether or not we are experiencing a sense of the absence of God and we don't know how to find ourselves within that, whether we feel like we're, we're living in light or or wandering in darkness, whether we're in knowing or whether we're in mystery, whether we're in speaking or whether we're in silence, the call to us from God is always the same. And it's the words of Jesus in this passage. And those words to us are always, don't be afraid and do you trust me? And when we're enjoying the cataphatic experience of God's presence. When God is great and he's moving and he's light and we, we feel him and we hear him and we see him, it's really often easier for us to not feel afraid and to say that we trust. But when, like the disciples, we're having an experience of chaos or storm, lostness, Jesus is in our boat, but he seems asleep. He's not saying anything and we wonder, who are you? That all of that is still okay as well. And it's just the, boy, you know, the words of Jesus to us would be, don't be afraid and do you trust me? I, um, in the last, you know, couple of years have been far more uh, aware and attuned to the absence of God in my life than I have been the presence of God. And that's just part of where I find myself now in my spiritual life. It's really hard. Um, and yet I haven't, I haven't made this happen and I probably can't unmake this happen. This is just part of God and the way that he's relating to me or sometimes I like to say not relating to me 
at the moment. And I feel like the invitation to me is constantly, don't be afraid, Carolyn. Do you trust me? To which I say, no. And I am afraid, and I'm not really sure what's going on. But the invitation is still, don't be afraid. I have this piece of art that I took a photo of. It's really quite... Um, I, anyway, this is a piece of art that I had um, drawn for me, and it's from one of my favourite poems by Hafiz, who's a um, Persian poet, and it's two giant fat people. And it says, God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. And I honestly love that poem. And I had uh, a friend draw this for me and, and it's, it hangs in our bedroom and I'll often look at it and it's in the, part, you know, in the past, it's brought me great joy and has been an utter truth about my spiritual life. The joy of God, the feeling that everywhere I turn, God is bumping into me. I know him, I feel him, we're in this together. It's good and it's glorious. But that has not been my felt reality for the last probably almost two years. And there have been times when I haven't, I've wanted to draw a different picture. Um, you know, God and I, or well, I have become, I don't know where God is, I have become like a tiny person living in a giant boat. I keep groping around in the darkness hoping to find God and he's nowhere. That's how, that, that would be the, the poem that I would write at this point in my spiritual life. But one of those is just very cataphatic and my experience that I'm having is probably an invitation towards the apophatic, which is I don't know. I just don't know. And I feel like one of the things that we're offered, I guess, in this space is when we feel like we're having these spiritual experiences, like God and I are like two fat people in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. It's really easy. It's almost like God is a tangible other. And we talk to him, we relate to him, he's there, he's in front of us, we can see him, sense him, bump into him and it fills us with joy. And this is, I, I long for those times, they're the good times, they're the lovey times of Song of Songs. Where it's like, hey, you know, wine and goblets and pomegranates and, you know, whatever. But when that's not our experience, when Jesus feels asleep in our boat, um, when it feels like we can't find him, when it feels like he's silent, I feel like the thing that's offered towards us is not can you relate to, to, to God like he's, you know, he's God's Drew and I'm me and we're relating like this. Like when God is not Drew <laughs> and I can't see him, I have to trust that he's somewhere I cannot see him and the invitation is to fall and trust that he'll catch me, that he's there. That's, that's always the invitation from God to us when we're in the absence, the silence, the wondering, is not to freak out, not to lose our minds, but to just know that God is beyond us. He's bigger than us. We don't understand him, and, but we can fall and he will catch us. And I often, you know, I have done a lot of, you know, falling <laughs> in that sense, not like terrible, like I'm falling, trusting. God, are you there? I can't see you. I can't sense you. 
but I'm trusting that somehow in this ungroundedness that I feel, you've got me, even if I can't name it or know it or feel it. And when I, when I read this passage, Jesus calms the storm, I feel like it's a beautiful picture of the reality of the spiritual life. Sometimes Jesus stands up, speaks and does something marvellous. And sometimes he just feels like he's asleep in our boat. But either way, he is with us. He is our boat. And even though we can't always touch him, see him, be tangible with him, he's with us. And so I wanted to offer, I guess, that reading to us because I think we just need to speak in those terms more often about the spiritual life. It's not always cataphatic. It's beautiful when it is. But sometimes we're invited to enter luminous darkness and trust in the God that will catch us in every moment and know that that's okay too. It's all part of it. It's all part of following him. It's all part of having him in our boat. And just to finish tonight, we're going to come to the communion table, which in itself is another you know, expression of both the cataphatic and the apophatic of God. Here in front of us, we have tangible bread visible juice and yet this is a mystery how is this God to us I don't know and yet Jesus said this is my body this is my blood broken and given for you take eat bring this very tangible sense of me into your body let it disappear and let the mystery of my goodness bear fruit in your life can we explain it no what are we called to do? Eat it. I'm grateful this is not a table I need to explain, simply a table I need to enjoy. And on the days when God seems distant, silent and far away, it really helps to have bread and wine in my hand and to say, I trust you. I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak. You're beyond me, yet you're here in my hands and I trust you. And so I know there might be some people here tonight who are just living in the cataphatic. Bless you. Keep singing because those of us who find ourselves more in the luminous darkness need to hear the song of those in praise. But for some of us, we are in places that are harder to define, harder to touch, harder to sense. And wherever you find yourself tonight, I want to invite you to the table to hold God in your hands and to hold him in your heart and to hear him say to you, don't be afraid. Do you trust me? Don't be afraid. Do you trust me? I'm with you. I've got this. Whether you know it or you don't, I'm still here. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>